From Sarasota Memorial, this is HealthCast. A healthy dose of information from experts you can trust. Hi, everyone. Welcome to HealthCast. I'm Allison Warren. Today, we're talking about some of the things that no one really wants to think about. Supportive care, end-of-life care, and palliative care. It's not always easy to think about these things, but if they're not discussed, when the time does come, loved ones are often left wishing they had been. Our guest today, Dr. Joelle Vlahakis, the Medical Director of Supportive Care Services and the Program Director of the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship Program at Sarasota Memorial Hospital. Dr. Vlahakis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So first, I want to talk about the conversations no one really wants to have. Can you explain the importance of having those conversations with loved ones about advanced directives? So when we talk about these things, we tend to term them advanced care planning. And the most important part of that is it's in advance of when you need it. And that's the hard part. Uh, Advanced care planning um, incorporates things like a living will. Um, Sometimes people think of it as a, a do not resuscitate or a DNR. Sometimes that's part of it. Sometimes that's not. And really important, who's going to speak for you if you can't speak for yourself? That's termed a healthcare surrogate. When should people be having these conversations with their loved ones? So whenever you think of it, it's a good time to have those conversations. I encourage people to think of it when they've had a life change, for example, when they've gotten married or perhaps gotten divorced. Maybe uh, they've had a hospitalization and that's made them think about what they might want under certain circumstances. So really, if you're thinking about it, again, the idea is to have it in advance of when you really need it, which means the time is now. Talking about those living wills, how important are they and how detailed should they really be? I'm so glad you asked that. A lot of people get intimidated because they think a living will has to be very long. And to be perfectly honest, the best ones I've ever seen are actually quite brief and quite short. What a living will really needs to do is specify for loved ones and family and physicians what you would want if you couldn't speak for yourself under certain circumstances. And do those need to be updated regularly as well? I think the most important part of this whole process is the conversation that you have with your family and those people who might be doing uh, the decision making for you at the time. If I had to pick, I'd say I would rather have had that conversation, that that focused talking, than even the piece of paper that tells me what to do. And that's largely because a piece of paper can't possibly put down all the different circumstances that might happen uh, in a situation where you need medical decisions to be made. Instead, if you really focus on who you are and what's important to you, and I'll give you an example. For example, my parents. My mother is very gregarious, she's very loving, and we tease her that as long as she was able to boss us around and and speak, that she would be just fine. On the other hand, my father's a very physical human. He's a great guy, very affectionate, and he really enjoys physical things. Um, He's an archer, he likes to garden, and for him, really, his physicality is the most important thing. So we know if that were altered in any way, he would want to continue on. So those kinds of things really center around what gets you going, what makes your life worth living, what are you willing to put up with to get better. Those are the kinds of conversations that are so important to have. 
Of course, we hope that this HealthCast episode will spur some of those conversations, but what is the process if a patient at SMH is unable to communicate but does not have advanced directives in place. Yeah, so this is a very common scenario. And of course, why? Because all of us hope to be here forever, right? And that's, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't uh, judge that in any way because we understand that's how that happens. What we try to do is have loved ones who are available to help us sort things out, represent you. So if they can say what you would want under certain circumstances, that's really very helpful. It's not up to them to make the decision. Their role is really to represent you in the context of that framing. Can you talk about the bioethical dilemmas faced by family members and even your team at the hospital during end-of-life care? So these most often occur either when it's not clear what's going to happen next, what the prognosis is, and that's a medical question that we try to sort out before we sit down with family members. But it can happen when family members either aren't sure or there's disagreement about what the best thing to do might be and what the person would want. They're difficult topics, as we've discussed, but end-of-life care really is so, so important. How do you recommend people choose their medical decision maker? So that's really very important, and it's not always the obvious person. So um, most of us would think about our life partners or our spouses under those circumstances, but what you really need to ask is, is that person able to give voice to what you would want? So I have two younger sisters, and they uh, were very close, and I've spoken to each of them about what I would want. And my youngest sister is completely not medical. She has no uh, interest in any of this, and she has told me very plainly that she would not be able to do that. Um, My younger sister, uh, who's uh, quite a comic, has said, oh yeah, I could totally do that for you, no problem. (laughs) So it is important to make sure that the person who's volunteering to speak for you is going to speak for you and not necessarily what they would want for themselves. COVID-19 made some of these topics even more difficult and complicated. So can you tell us why COVID-19 made things more difficult when it came to advanced directives specifically? Sure. So when we sit down with a family and a patient, the most important piece of information that we have to offer in terms of medical um, decision making is what's the outlook, right? What would the prognosis be? And for many disease states, we know them fairly well. Somebody with lung disease or heart disease or cancers, these are very well prescribed and we have a lot of experience with them. We wanna give people good information and the truth is with COVID-19, we're learning as we go. And so I'm not nearly as confident giving a prognosis, telling people what's going to happen next. Their loved one might be very, very sick on breathing machines and all manner of support, needing dialysis and the like, and there's still a possibility that they might get better. I think the conversations are very different now. Um, I've spoken with my parents about this, and the way I frame the conversation with them is a little bit different. What I tell them is quite honestly, we're getting better at this all the time. And there's no doubt that we're going to continue to learn. So there's that, that's a good thing. But what I really need to know from them is how much would they be willing to put up with to get better? And I know you had Dr. Bayorik on last week and he talked about the rehabilitation 
this is a long road if you become that sick, and especially if you're older than 65. This is not for the faint of heart. You have a lot of systems that are involved with COVID-19, um, a lot of muscular systems, your brain. How much are you willing to go through to get better? And how much better is good enough for you? Like my parents, is what we talked about, like, what's really important to them? Um, there's so much unknown, but I think that's a fair way to approach it. Now, have people been revisiting their advanced directives conversations because of COVID-19 and maybe changing what their wishes are? I understand that many people are, and that's not necessarily a bad part of this pandemic. I love that people are thinking about this really critically, uh, examining this for themselves, thinking about this in a new way. Unfortunately for all of us, it's become more real uh, than we ever thought imaginable. And it is something that people are talking to each other about and trying to sort through. Some people have very strong feelings about it and they want their living will to remain as is and that's wonderful. Others are taking a more critical, practical view to it and that's okay too. COVID-19 also made things more difficult for families because oftentimes there have been restrictions on visitors. And when we're talking about palliative care, end of life care, um, those can be very difficult times if you're not able to all be there with your loved one, the entire family. Can you talk about how you've sure. been managing that? I have to tell you that this above all things has been the most challenging, not only for patients and families, but also for those of us providing the care. We, I don't think, had an appreciation for how much we depended on things like body language and the energy in the room to communicate with one another. Communicating on the phone or even on FaceTime isn't the same. It's not nothing though. And we work really, really hard to try to improve our skills all the time so that we are doing something we like to call amplifying the message. So being more descriptive on the phone so uh, loved ones feel like they're connected somehow. We do a lot of very interesting things with technology now, with FaceTime and iPads and telehealth. And we're trying so hard to try to get as close to that uh, experience of having people in the room as, as, as much as possible. But it has been really, really hard for all of us. Uh, I know we've talked in the past about the things that we're doing at the bedside to try to improve that. Um, we play music, music that's really important to families so they know that there's a certain song being played at the time. We do our best to be present. I know some of the nurses have come uh, come to start saying things like, you know, I'm holding his hand, pretend it's your hand, this is where we are, this is what he looks like. Doing a lot of very descriptive, very much mindful, in the moment communication. And we've never done that before. That's been brand new for us. In palliative care in particular, we really value that face-to-face -face meeting. It is our procedure. We don't do anything sexy like, um, cardiac catheterizations or the like, but we're pretty good at the family meeting, gathering people together and making it so that there's a safe place to exchange information and talk about really difficult things. Well, we've learned how to do that with FaceTime and conferencing people in and actually putting up an iPad on an easel so it's as if we're talking to the person. It's not the same, but it's also not nothing. It feels like this is a learning opportunity for every part of the hospital because there are so many things you don't think about like that. 
And I've been really touched and, and impressed by the level of collaboration with my fellow physicians and colleagues. We're all working side by side and really supporting one another and sharing things that we know now, sharing the things that we're concerned about, um, really um, talking a lot about, okay, how can we best operate in the system and oh my gosh I just learned this other thing about how we can make someone more comfortable let's do that for this patient it's been really something else thank you so much Dr. Vlahakis I want to shift gears a little bit because it's exciting that Sarasota Memorial Hospital launched a hospice and palliative care fellowship you're the director of that so why was it so important and what is the goal of this fellowship so a lot of people don't realize that hospice and palliative medicine is now a board certified specialty. Um, that's, it's an emerging specialty, so not everyone understands that or knows that. In 2012, it became uh, mandatory that anyone who wanted to sit for that board exam also have a fellowship. So it's um, wonderful that we understand that people need to be trained in this very specialized aspect of medicine, but it also created a bit of a problem. We need more specialists to do this work. As you've mentioned with COVID-19, we have been sort of placed in the forefront. We're suddenly very popular and very needed. Uh, we knew well ahead of this pandemic, however, that if we didn't make our own specialist, we weren't going to necessarily get them. They're very hard to come by. There's only so many programs in the country. So Sarasota Memorial Hospital, together with its board and its leadership, uh, determined that this would be something they would be willing to do uh, to in, order, in order to make sure that Sarasota and our community had uh, enough of these specialists for, uh, for us. And the goal of graduate education is to get those physicians to come here, train here, build a life here, and hopefully stay. Yes, and I'm really excited to report that we have two fellowship positions every year. This was our first year. They were both filled by graduates of the internal medicine residency program here at Sarasota Memorial Hospital and Florida State University. So these are homegrown folks. Everyone is so thrilled that they're here. They keep congratulating me about how wise I was with my choices because they're just incredible humans. And I know they're gonna do a fantastic job. Can you explain what palliative care is we talk about it a lot, but sure. I'm not sure we know what it is. Sure. So hospice and palliative medicine overlap quite a bit, but they're not exactly the same thing. Palliative medicine is specialized care for people with serious illness, regardless of where they are in terms of whether they are seeking cure or not. Hospice requires that someone have a prognosis of less than 180 days. And you can imagine that really narrows your focus in terms of being able to provide care that's focused on pain and symptom management, on relief of distress and stress. Uh, the, uh, the family is our unit of care, not just the patient. Uh, we also try to make sure there's good communication between the medical team and everyone in the family and the patient. And importantly, we also try to weigh in on prognosis. Well, those skills are really important, but what would happen if we gave them to people who are still perhaps in the throes of treatment? Well, what we've discovered is that they actually do better. Outcomes are improved. It's not just about going in and being nice to someone and leaving. We, um, with relief of that 
stress and those symptoms, people actually do better. And everyone understands this. When you feel better, you do better. Uh, we are all about whatever the patient might determine is a priority. Sometimes we do things like fine hearing aids or reading glasses, things that are so straightforward and simple but make a really big difference in terms of that patient experience of that hospital stay. Um, we are very collaborative and we work very closely with the patient's primary providers, so we never go rogue. We never uh, come in and try to change a plan of care at all. Instead, we just make some slight changes so that whatever that plan is, it really reflects who that person is and what they're, what's most important to them, not necessarily what's on our agenda. Now, there's this kind of stigma that if you say a loved one needs palliative care, that's the end of the road. But what patients actually need palliative care? So it's interesting, right? Because um, the longer I do this, the larger our scope gets. Um, initially, of course, uh, most of the patients that we saw were really at end of life, and we do that, and we're happy to do that. But what we're discovering is as we uh, move through time uh, with our colleagues that they're using us in a much more finer way. Sometimes all I do is say, get some adjusted to their new level of illness. Uh, help them understand that their chronic illness is a chronic illness and it's not actually going to limit their life expectancy in the way that they expect, they think. Um, we do a lot of things with enhancing people's coping skills. Uh, a lot of people come to us with really good strengths and we want to make sure that they understand that who they are and what they bring to the table still matters very much. So we tend to be a supportive force, in case, and in fact, we call it supportive care at the hospital to help people with the stigma, but it's really quite amusing because people are getting very sophisticated, and a lot of folks have either had a palliative care experience or want one, and as soon as I explain the service, they'll say, oh yes, we've been waiting for you, we've been waiting for palliative care. So that stigma is very quickly falling away. As the stigma is changing and falling away, as you said, how is that an important learning tool now that you have the fellowship program? Right, so I'm learning things about my specialty, my chosen specialty all the time. Certainly having uh, graduate medical uh, learners is going to propel that further. Um, I think that um, the possibilities for palliative care continue to emerge for all of us nationally. I think this pandemic has opened up for us nationally a conversation about who do we want to be as a specialty. Uh, we determined quite early on in at Sarasota Memorial that we were in this thing and we weren't going to leave this thing. And so it's not been unusual for us to be one of the only providers within the COVID ICU, for example, and the other uh, nurses and physicians know we're in it with them. Um, it's been that way nationally, though, when we look at places hardest hit, like New York and New Orleans and other places. Um, palliative care has really stepped up. It's, it's a part of, uh, I think, where we're going forward. Um, the wonderful thing about where we are medically is that there's so much to offer in terms of technology, and that is in part why, why palliative care even grew up in this era. It's because we can do so many things, and it's important that doing all those things line up with who that person is and be care that that person really wants. So in my view, 
that's only going to become a more acute need because as I watched my colleagues get better and better at what they do, uh, that means more and more opportunities for conversations with patients and families. So this first year of fellows will have an interesting learning opportunity in that they're experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic. So how will that be part of their curriculum? So we talked about this uh, very seriously together uh, very recently. And what we've decided to do is welcome these new learning opportunities, whatever they might be. For example, telemedicine and telehealth. We want our fellows to be ready for whatever this new world is going to be. And those skills are going to be important. Being able to communicate with families on the phone, for example, going to be very important. There's aspects of their um, 12 months which might be altered. For example, they have a long-term care requirement. We may have to be very creative about how we want to handle that since most of the time long-term care facilities do not want people coming in and out uh, at, you know, ad lib there. So we're going to be respectful, we're going to be creative, we're going to be flexible, and we're going to figure this out. Um, we know for certain that the fellows are going to get an incredible experience. Um, the very week they started, it got very busy. So I think that tells us a lot about where we're going to go from here. Dr. Joelle Vlahakas, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you, Allison. And thank you everyone who's joined us for this important episode of HealthCast. If you would like more information about COVID-19, please visit smh.com COVID-19 for the latest information from Sarasota Memorial Hospital. Stay safe and stay healthy, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit smh.com. Follow us on your favorite social media network.